Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Galatians 3, and we're going to be looking at 15 through 18. I'm going to read from 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your provision of uh, the covenant-keeping Christ. Lord, we thank you for his work on the cross, his becoming the curse. His taking our place and being a substitute. Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us in your word that we are justified by faith and not based upon works of the law. And so we can be sure that we are saved because you do not lie and your promises are, are always true and always fulfilled. Lord, bless us as we look at this passage. Help us to understand it and to apply it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Amen. So Galatians 3, 15 through 18 is our focus. Last time, the Apostle Paul, you'll remember, uses the Old Testament scriptures to refute the Judaizers and demolish their theology of grace plus works. So he goes to the Old Testament scriptures, he goes to the example of Abraham, he goes to... Um, he goes specifically to the example of Abraham and points out how Abraham was justified by believing in God. He was justified by faith, and his righteousness was therefore credited to him by God. And so, um, so that's where we pick up this time. This time, the Apostle Paul goes back to Abraham and considers how, and begins to consider this question of how does then the law fit into this whole picture? How does the law relate to justification? How does Moses relate to Abraham? And that really carries us through uh, the next portions of the book of Galatians. And so he's, he's taking up that question, when Moses came along and God delivered his law, Moral, judicial, ceremonial, right? Three different types of law in the Old Testament. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, that is eternally in effect. The judicial are the applications of the moral law specifically to Israel as a nation. And then the ceremonial law, all those laws having to do with ceremonial cleanness, the sacrifices, all that was done in the uh, in the the uh, worship of of Israel, and so uh, ceremonial laws in Christ have been abrogated. Is the word they've been they they are f- fulfilled in Christ and no longer in effect. Uh, judicial laws have a general application um, to our modern life. We take general principles from those, and the moral law is always in effect and applies to Christian and non-Christian alike, all human beings. So, so when Moses comes along and delivers that law, the moral, judicial, and ceremonial, did that change the way that God worked? Did that change the way that God related to man? Did that change the way that man was saved? Did God nullify the covenant that he had made with Abraham when he set up the covenant with Moses? And that's the whole question, you know, what, um, what's still in effect and was there sort of a, a covenant that was drawn off the table and a new covenant placed on the table when Moses came along? There are some today who see more than one way of salvation in the Bible, (coughs) right? Who sees more than one way of salvation in the Bible? Yeah, dispensationalists do, right? They say that the Jews are saved in one way, Christians are saved in another way. Old Testament saints are saved in one way, New Testament saints are saved in a different way, that the Jews are saved by works of the law, and that Christians are saved by grace. And so they're they're parallel tracks, but different tracks. 
to be justified before God. Um, and so they make that, that distinction that this passage just completely demolishes. There's no way to go through the book of Galatians and come out of it a dispensationalist. Can't do it. it the Apostle Paul refutes anybody who tries to bring in the works of the law as a way of salvation. And so we don't want to pause that there's like a New Testament way by grace and then there's an Old Testament way by works of the law or the accumulation of merit or be like the Judaizers who saw sort of a hybrid. You know, you got to kind of do both. You got to, it is by grace, but then it's continued by works, which is a hybrid view. All of which are thrown out. This, those views are destroyed by this passage. There is only one way of salvation. By grace, through faith. That's how it always has been. That's how it always will be. There has only ever been that one way. Is that confusing or is that clear? Is that confusing to you? Does it make sense? Is it confusing based upon the way that you were taught when you were a kid? In your, in your Baptist context, right? God instituted a covenant with man. I mean, there are covenants that precede the covenant of grace, right? We could talk about the covenant of works that God made with Adam. If you obey, if you don't, okay, there's that covenant of works, there's the covenant of redemption that precedes even that, where God the Father and God the Son covenant together to redeem mankind even before creation. Okay? But then, as soon as man falls, the covenant of grace is in effect. And how do we know that? As soon as man falls, how do we know that? Okay, that's point number one. He didn't die. Adam didn't instantly die. He came to them. Okay. He what? Clothed them. So he's doing all this providing, all this covering, all this um, kindness he's showing to man. I'm going to wait for it. I'll sit here for 10 minutes in silence if I have to. Oh, yes. The proto-evangelium, something like that. Right? The gospel in its seed form. Right? Uh, Genesis 3.15. Right? The seed of the woman, the, the crushing, the, the head of this, the serpent, and the serpent biting the heel, right? Right there is the promise of Jesus Christ. Right there is salvation by his work, not our work. So right there. Covenant of grace is in effect, boom, right after the fall, and still is 
and ever will be until Christ returns, right? And the kingdom is consummated. That covenant of grace continues on. This is covenant theology, okay? This is covenant theology. It stands against and opposed to dispensations of different kinds of salvation in different epochs of the church. No, covenant theology is God deals with us by covenants and we see his covenants and his promises. Covenants is a fancy way to say promises. We see his promises right from the beginning and those last. And so how was, how was David saved? How was Abraham saved? How was <clears throat> Solomon saved? They were saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus, looking forward. How are we saved? We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, looking back, okay? So there's that, a little bit of review of covenant theology. So, so salvation has always been by grace through faith, but how does the law fit in? And it's not a way of salvation, then what is it? Well, We'll get there. It's almost um, next Sunday's lesson, but verses 15 through 17, he's still, the Apostle Paul is still putting forward this, this um, teaching about Abraham, and the first thing he says here, brethren, I, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Right? So what he's saying there is like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you to a human example of contracts and promises. And the human example of contracts and promises is when you put a contract in place, you know, like when you signed all those documents when you got a mortgage, you did not then go home, take out a Sharpie marker, and start changing the rules of the contract on your end, right? You, you couldn't do that. The, the bank would have just, or the lender would have laughed at you. You, you can't do that. But, but um, maybe you're insisting, so you slashed your interest rate, and you slashed what was owed, right? Down to zero, <laughs> right? And you, and you, you know, added a few people's names to the contract, whatever. Um, that doesn't fly even in human relations. And we're fickle, and we change all the time, and we are not even close to as stable, sinless, unchangeable as God. And so when God does something, it's in effect, and it's good, right? So when, that, when he made that, when he made that covenant, no one can set it aside. No one can do anything different, right? Now, it's interesting when he says, I speak in terms of human relations. Calvin sort of starts, um, Calvin's wonderful. Read his sermons, please. I know I say it like every week, but read his sermons. Because... <sighs> If I could summarize Calvin's theology, and, and you, you guys could do the same thing. If I could summarize John Calvin's theology, it's God is great and man is a worm. 
man is just sinful through and through. And God is holy and pure and wonderful and gracious. Just like every page of his sermons, he's coming back to that. So even on this statement where Paul is saying, I'm, I'm going to talk to you in human terms, Calvin says, by saying that, he is speaking after the manner of men. He is implying that his style and language are not adequate to, to describe such an awesome being. For when God shines forth in all his glory, the sun and the moon lose their brilliance. All is as darkness compared to him. What then of men who are like flies or frogs in his sight, creeping upon the face of the earth? For however much men may be puffed up with pride in the eyes of God, they are less than nothing. <laughs> less than nothing. That's a great phrase. He uses it all the time. You are, an, you are negative, right? You are less than nothing. <laughs> and so he's just saying here, even with this language of, of Paul using a human example, it sort of emphasizes the fact that, yeah, we're, we're, we're small and God is great. But even in human contracts, we wouldn't be so presumptuous as to start changing things unilaterally. Okay. Human covenants, contracts, are binding. You can't set it aside. You can't add new conditions to it to try to do that with um, anything. Um, you will see what the other party has to say. So if it is true that human covenants, if it's true of human covenants, how much more is it true with covenants made by the God who does not change and does not err? Okay, and then verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. Now this is strange. Now we're, now we're dealing with the difference between a singular and a plural. That's how detailed the Apostle Paul is going to get in his exegesis of the Old Testament. Right? It's a singular, not a plural. It's seed, not seeds. So what do we make of this? Um, it is true that the covenant was made, the covenant made with Abraham was made with not just Abraham, but his descendants. Right? And so we could interpret seed in the singular as a collective. Right? It's made with all of his descendants. And um, the Apostle Paul points out that the singular seed is important. The covenant was made with Abraham and his seed, not seeds. Now, here's what one commentator had to say about that. And follow this through. Abraham had two sons. What were the names of the sons of Abraham? Isaac and Ishmael. Yet the promise was transmitted to only one of them. Which one? In the next generation, there were two sons again. Yeah. Jacob and Esau. But the promise was transmitted only through Jacob. Thus, thus seed does, not, does indicate selectivity. The promise is not made to all Abraham's descendants but to the elect seed. 
culminating in Christ, the seed. Right? His point is that the parties in this covenant are God on one side and Abraham and the seed, Christ, on the other. Thus, the terms of the covenant extend through the centuries to the present. No alteration in this covenant with the true descendants of Abraham, ratified in Christ, could be made. No changes. Right? And so, that's one... We get confused about that passage, but I think it's just very simple, right? Seed is talking actually about selectivity and the, the, cut, the elect seed that the promises of Abraham go to, right? By God's sovereign choice, by his gracious choice, not by anything, right? What does Romans 9 say about Jacob and Esau, Right? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and before they had ever done anything, right, whether good or bad, Jacob was chosen. Okay, and so um, that is, he's saying this in a very rich theological sense. And notice that the, it uses the word seed. This is a very organic word, isn't it? It's a word that modern Bible translators are a little bit embarrassed about because it has too much of a feel of like, you know, no, like sperm, <laughs> seed, right? And so they've removed it from your English Bibles, right? That's the word that was inspired by in the Old Testament by the Holy Spirit. And so often um, they'll, they'll change that to descendants or descendant. And yet there's something wonderfully organic and understandable. It doesn't take much imagination to interpret seed. And it, it, it just, it's more earthy and more helpful for uh, our understanding. I just mentioned that as an aside. You'll notice that that word gets cleaned up in modern English Bible translations. And so, um, so then we get to 17. What I am saying is this, the law. All right, so now he's focused on the law. He's come away from covenants and promises and the graciousness of God, and he's getting back to that question of, okay, what, what's, how does the law fit in? What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Okay, so there it is. When Moses came along and when God expressed the iteration of the covenant to Moses and added those laws, the purpose was not to change the way of salvation. It had a purpose, the purpose was different, but it was never to change how justification happened. That was always by faith, it would always be by faith, the covenant of grace is always in effect, and Moses and the law serve a different purpose, okay? This is where so many people get confused, right? So many people think, well, the law came and so Abraham's out and now we have to keep the law in order to be saved. I mean, who makes that error? Who made that error? Who makes that error? 
Does anybody make that error today? Is that error a problem today? I would imagine Jews following the Pharisees make that error. And so 430 years, so what's this 430 years that the Apostle Paul is talking about here? Well, there's some question about the boundaries on this. Certainly the end boundary of 430 years is Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, right? So if we go back 430 years, that takes us to about the reiteration of the covenant to Jacob, right? The restatement of the covenant of grace to Jacob, rather than to Abraham, right? And so I think that's what the Apostle Paul had in mind here, was that 430 years, which makes the significance of that reiteration of the covenant of grace to Jacob very important, right? It's a very important point in salvation history. So that's the 430 years, and so the law, when it came, did not invalidate grace, did not change the rules of the game, did not have anything to do with justification. The law never, ever, 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 ever had anything to do with justification. Never. Never, ever. I'm just quoting Luther there. <laughs> There's no, no part of it. Okay? So many people are confused on this. The law does not invalidate grace. Don't forget what the Apostle Paul has just taught about Abraham's justification. It was by faith, and there has always and only been one way. One commentator said, Paul is not denying the validity of the law. Okay, so we have to talk about that too. The law has a purpose. There is a validity to it. It is to be reverenced, right? I mean, we do have to pay attention to the law. But, as far as justification is concerned, you better not pay attention to the law. You better believe like Abraham the believer, right? That's the way of salvation. And so, this commentator says, Paul is not denying the validity of the law, but he is saying quite firmly that those provisions did not provide a path by which they could merit salvation. And then another commentator, the law has nothing to do with justification. <laughs> Can we get that in our heads? I, I just think we don't get that. I think it's our natural inclination, especially when we're young, perhaps, in the faith and and don't really know what justification is or what sanctification is, is to say, I'm only going to be saved if I live in a way that's pleasing to God. I'm only going to be saved if I do certain works. It's sort of like a default position of Americans, right? Everybody thinks they're going to heaven because they're going to, their good works are going to outweigh their bad, which is hilarious, if you have any sense of yourself revealed to you by even just 
a half of a percent of the Holy Spirit, you know that that's ridiculous. No one will be saved on outbalancing bad with good. I mean, it's just absurd, right? And again, that's why you should read Calvin calling you a worm all the time. Be reminded of that. It'll just make you love your justification. So, um, justification, not based on law. Calvin says, if our salvation were based upon works or upon our worthiness in terms of what we have achieved before God, how could we be sure to obtain what was promised? If it's by works, how can you be sure you've done enough? We would always stand in doubt, he says, for we would always be asking, well, what have I done? Have I reached the standard required? In this way, faith is canceled out. Further, um, uh, got a wrong word in my notes. I'm trying to exegete my own notes. He says all would be based upon supposition, right? If we're looking to build up our works. All would be based on, upon supposition. And even then, our thinking would be affected by the delusions of Satan. For all whose hopes are founded upon their own virtues have been bewitched by the devil. Bewitched, the word that the Apostle Paul uses earlier in the book to talk about the the Galatians starting by faith and continuing on by works and changing, um, changing the terms of the contract, so to speak. All right, so then he says, so Moses, the law and Moses do not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God that one made, Genesis 3.15, reiterated to um, Abraham and to Jacob. And it does not, because if he had done that, if it had replaced it, nullifies grace. It just throws grace completely out. He says, nope, 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 nope. And then verse 18, for if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So the promise is key. And by saying promise, it just means God provides everything that he said he would when he unilaterally contracted with us. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will make you a great nation, I will be your God, I will, you know, all those things. And um, those are the promises, those are the, that's the grace toward lawbreakers. So the promise is key, not law-keeping. There was no law with Abraham, so that couldn't be the means of justification. Romans 4.13, For the promise to Abraham or to, and to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. There it is again, succinct form, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is bringing up the example of Abraham again to refute those who are trying to lead astray Christians and put them back 
on their heels and, and lead them to a different path of righteousness. Now, God is not fickle. Right? That's one thing we, have to, we should take away from this. Think about this. How many years has it been since Abraham? Four and a half thousand years. Maybe five thousand years. And that contract, that promise, his covenant is still in effect. Still going. Still the only way of salvation. Still by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the way of salvation. And God has not changed those that the terms, right? If he promises, it will come to into effect. He does not change, he does not lie. And so his promises are permanent. Permanent. Now, this means there's no division between the Old Testament and the New Testament in regard to justification. Just get that out of your heads. Get that out of your heads. The Old Testament is a Christian book. It's not a Jewish book. It's a Christian book. Okay? It's Christian from the very beginning to the very end, both Old and New Testament. It is one continuous outlying of the covenant of God with man. From beginning to end, God deals with us in covenant. And so there is no diff, there, there, is, there is continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. Now, there are different outward administrations between the Old and the New. And that's why if you're Presbyterian, Presbyterians are always making that, that connection between the signs of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament and the signs of the covenant of grace in the New Testament and saying the signs are no different because it's one covenant of grace. And so circumcision rightfully applies to and is an analogy to baptism. But even in that, if God had said, and in, you know, if, if God wanted to radically change the, as if, you know, cutting off the foreskin and water baptism aren't radically different. But he could have made it more radically different, I guess, if he had said, well, no more kids, no more children, right? No more baptism until profession of faith. But there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And in fact, in the New Testament, the connection between baptism and circumcision is made explicit in Colossians 2. Okay? And so, but, but it's all about this one covenant of grace. Yes, things, small things change. The administration changes. Right? The administration changes. We go from bloody sacraments to bloodless sacraments. We go from worshiping on Saturday to worshiping on Sunday. Okay? As a commemoration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, different outward administrations, 
like circumcision and baptism, Lord's Supper and Passover, but no separate ways of salvation. None. One way of salvation, justification, is on the basis of faith alone in Christ alone. Okay? This is the teaching of covenant theology. This is how we organize. No, that's not a good way to put it. This is how God has expressed his relationship to us in the scriptures by means of promises, by means of covenant, unilateral covenant. So, now if you look down in the passage, finally Paul gets to the, well, why then the law? And that's what we'll take up next time. <laughs> so he's just getting us ready. But you see the flow of his argument here. Like he's using Abraham. He's saying that Abraham was justified in the same way. And now he's starting to like figure out, so how does the law fit in here? Is there some sort of change in the covenant? And now he's going to finally get to the question of, okay, since there's no change, how exactly does the law fit in? What is its purpose in this? And that's what we're going to look at next time. Okay, why the law? And and it it's a little secret. It's not for justification. It's actually the opposite. <laughs> it's to condemn. It's to condemn. It's to trap every man in his sin. Right. It is to condemn, not to justify. Calvin says this in conclusion, we'll, I'll um, read this. We must add that the inheritance must be by faith in order to banish all our pride. There he goes again. When we claim to deserve something from God or when we say that we have a free will to either accept or reject what God offers, we display our arrogance. It is our duty to ignore that which men are accustomed to attribute to themselves and to trample it underfoot, as it were. We must approach God stripped of all our supposed virtues and come empty and famished. Then we must find in him all that we need. We ought to be confident that our God has plentiful supplies and is able to provide what we lack. For he had endued the Lord Jesus Christ with everything that we could hope for, as well as with all that was needful and beneficial to us. Thus, we can enjoy the inheritance that God promised at the beginning of time because it is still offered to us today through the preaching of the gospel. It's wonderful, right? It's wonderful. We don't have to make this mishmash, confused, sort of one way, other way, six different ways. Like, how does this relate to this? It's like, no. Paul just comes in and says, covenant of grace, whoosh, ongoing. And then we go back and read the scriptures. We're like, huh. Yeah. Really seems to be the case. Habakkuk couple thousand years later is like the righteous man will live by faith. Why didn't he say the righteous man will live by meritorious works? No, because he knew. He knew it was by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so next time, well, then 
okay, what's up with the law? We'll, we'll get to that next time. Let's pray. Unless there's a question. We have a few minutes. Yeah, Bob. Oh, man, well, yes. (laughs) Undoubtedly, yes. Yeah, I mean, there are so many many people who, who, um, I mean, the the mainline liberal church in America does not cling to Christ for their righteousness. They cling to wokeness for their righteousness. They cling to sexual identity for their righteousness. They don't cling to Christ, and so they think they're justified by their works. So yeah, I mean, the the Old Testament saints lived by faith. So yes, it was a much more Christian church than some of the Christian churches of today and all through time. I agree with that. Any other thoughts or questions? Maybe. On covenant theology? Uh, o. Palmer Robertson's Christ of the Covenants is probably what I would read. That's the one to start with. It's very good. It's very helpful. So, O. Palmer Robertson, I think it's called the Christ of the Covenants or the Christ of the Covenant. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good one. Classic. What else? Anything else? Questions? Thoughts? Zandy? I probably don't have an answer then. (laughs) Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, we would have to go look at Rome, Romans 4 specifically and try and try and work through that. But, again, it, it's, as far as Galatians, the approach is fairly easy because you know that from beginning to end, he's addressing justification. So everything is submitted under that. What is the role of, of works and sanctification? What is the role of keeping the law, the three uses of the law, right? Um, that, that's a different, it's a different thrust, different conversation. But um, maybe we'll get there. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he, he is our righteousness. Thank you for his sacrificial death. And Father, we pray that as we worship you today, that you would fill our minds with his glory.
that we would truly pray and preach and worship and sing with faith in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.